This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hello, this is Lynn of Lynn and Jen, and today we're going to be talking about uh, our topic, a general subject. Let's talk about sex, but also be discussing complicity and particularly how it's played out in today's world um, in general around gender issues with women being complicit around men's sexual behaviors and misogyny. So how are you doing today, Jen? I'm doing good. I'm excited for this conversation. I'm looking forward to talking about the different aspects of this. I think it's really interesting that Dictionary.com chose complicit as their word of the year for 2017. So it's obviously something that's on a lot of people's minds. And what surprised me from our conversations really before this uh, show is that uh, uh, there's so many different aspects of complicity. And a lot of times people are really unwilling to recognize uh, their complicity in any activities. It doesn't only have to be misogyny or sexual abuse, but there's a whole range of behaviors that we're complicit in and probably not so aware of. And I think it it's what we were talking about earlier where I brought up in our society right now, complicity is very much associated with morality. And so if you're owning your complicity, it's almost like you're also being asked to own that you're an immoral person. And nobody wants to think about themselves as an immoral person. And not much good comes from thinking about yourself as an immoral person, as we've talked about regarding shame. And so I think then it becomes a really hard discussion to have because we are all complicit to some degree because otherwise society would not be the way it is now. But being able to own your own part, however small, you have to learn to separate some of that and say, I can still be a good person and have been complicit in these ways. Right. And if we're talking about uh, gender issues, for example, that let's say you've witnessed misogyny um, at a workplace setting, and there's been particularly men that are putting the female employees down and females are being treated very differently. And it's about how you react to that. And there are different degrees of that. And you might say something, you might file a complaint for the women, even as a witness, you might provide support for the women who are enduring it. There's so many different ways you can really handle that type of situation. Right. And I think that's some of what we're having to reconcile now is what can we do and how much responsibility as someone who is not a direct participant of this harassment behavior as a witness, what is the role of the witness? I think that's a lot of what we're asking in terms of a social examination of complicity and saying 
I think we're landing more often on the side of if you see something, you do have a part in it. It doesn't mean you're the one responsible for the behavior happening, but you do have an opportunity for things to go differently and to make a difference. Yes, I was thinking of one of the the cases I saw this week as we've talked about this little girl. She's about 13 years old, but when she was in a daycare center and was nine years old, uh, she herself was sexually abused repeatedly and witnessed the sexual abuse of much younger children. And she worked very hard to try to stop the male abuser from abusing the children, really intervened. She did many of the things we've talked about. She provided support, loving hugs to the little children. She tried to step in and take the abuse herself and prevent them from being abused. She did a lot of different things. And the children called for her to help them. Uh, But she herself, you know, it was interesting to me that this really young teenager saw herself as being complicit in the activity because she wasn't able to stop it because it went on a long time and she finally spoke out against it. But even then, adults were much less effective at ending it than she herself had been in this role. So You know, I think often complicity affects all of us if we're willing to think about it. This girl didn't yet realize the morality aspect of it and that she was a a so-called bad person for doing this, but she was very, very aware of her uh, role in this complicit behavior, even though she herself was a child. That's so fascinating to hear about because even though I don't have the same experience in terms of a client, I definitely recognize a lot of those patterns, particularly in my teen clients, where they're wrestling with the nuanced aspect of these things where I didn't do these things, but I saw it happen to my friend and I didn't do anything or I tried to do this and it was ineffective. How much responsibility do I bear with that? And I think those are some tough conversations and they're important to have because it is important to look at those nuances. They do make a difference. With our teen clients, so often they're being scapegoated or treated badly by other kids and they, they witness this happening to other kids. So I'd say every session with a a child over maybe the age of nine, there's some vignette about how they saw other children being abused. And they ask themselves over and over again, what could they have done? You know, and this is is what we're getting back to for our whole culture, is to really look at this subject. And I think taking harassment more seriously, a lot of people don't consider bullying that happens in middle school or elementary school harassment. But if you look at the definitions of harassment, a lot of it is. And so when kids are bringing up these problems, sometimes it does get dismissed, whether by a teacher, whether by a parent or the yard duty person. And so then they're left internally wrestling with, well, I feel that this isn't okay but the adults that I trust to keep me safe are saying it's not what I think it is. And a lot of times, depending on how much the child is able to hold their own thought in contrast to what someone else, an adult figure, I would say, believes, you get 
different variations in terms of how they're going to react. But I know with some of my younger clients, that is a lot of what we talk about is more about the bullying aspect, but really bringing up that they feel harassed and that that's an important thing. And they need to listen to that inner voice. And there can be emotional harassment. There can be physical harassment. You know, the bullying programs are part of this. And they're really very, bullying activity is very damaging for children. Oh, yeah. Your self-esteem, your ability to trust yourself, but also your ability to trust those around you, that, that those with more power will support you. And I think that plays into more of what we're talking about too in terms of you had mentioned going to the police and sometimes the police aren't very helpful and so you really need we need as a society to create systems that do support people and that was I think some of where this whole conversation started (laughs) for me was I was thinking about you know what are some of the systems that are in place that keep people so complicit because it's very hard to be the one lone person standing up but what has made the Me Too campaign so powerful is you realize you're not alone. And you bring up the police. I think one of the biggest areas of complicity for police has been in child abuse cases. Yes. Uh, Because they're the, if it's the lone voice of a child against an adult, even though children do not lie around abuse, the adult will be believed. In this particular case I'm talking about, there were five children involved with it, all speaking out and saying the same thing. And even then they had trouble standing up against the adult. They were doubted. The police actually put them in a lineup or had them choose photos and choose from a lineup of men who Mm. the abuser was. And when you think about the, the fear the children are having, this was obviously the abuser because he was in their daycare, but still they have trouble doing some of these adult things in terms of identifying. So really modifying what we do as uh, our police do and in terms of investigating child abuse is really, really important. I think that is so important to take into that perspective. And I would add to that, one of the things that often isn't considered is how much the threats or the the fears of these threatened actions coming true play into how complicit a person is. A lot of times these children think their their parents are going to be killed or someone they love is going to be killed or somebody's going to die or, you know, these are things the abusers threaten. And on a different level, we're seeing the way these threats play out in the workplace in terms of someone in power threatening your position at work. Well, if that's your livelihood, then, you know, the complicity is not as simple as people make it in terms of these moral, immoral judgments. There's so many different dynamics that are Absolutely, Jennifer. And, you know, I'm just thinking about uh, uh, this daycare center to stay with the example. Yeah. I mean, this man was engaging in abuse, but he forced his own daughter to participate in the abuse. And then she tried to get this oldest child to participate. So abusers will often try to normalize their behavior and try to engage others. And uh, then how complicit are the others that do this? I think it's, these are really good questions. I I really agree with you. I think America struggles because we've tied up, 
complicity and other things with morality. Um, France right now has a show called French Village, Village Francais, and they're looking at all the French people's complicity in World War II with the Nazis. And it's a show that rivets France at the moment. People wait for every issue. And I think it's because, or many reasons, but I think it's because many uh, French people have had to deal with their grandparents who and parents and others who were involved in these activities were complicit, and they've had to begin to have these conversations. But I've been impressed with how the show has shown the different sides of complicity. And it doesn't necessarily tie it up with morality in the same way that we do. And in contrast, we have Trump saying we're all traitors if we didn't clap at his State of the Union speech. So right away here, the moral stamp goes on our behavior, and it makes it harder for us to admit our part in things. Right. Because again, it goes back to that idea, of course, nobody is willingly going to just say, yes, I am an immoral person, right? But I think people, if you if you slow down, if you back away from that moral stance, you can get people to say, okay, I can see that in not doing something here, I did contribute to this problem. And maybe I didn't contribute in the same way as somebody like Trump or somebody who is abusive, but I did because I didn't do something to change the system. And I think that's what we need is a lot of little people, or not little people, a lot of people coming together and accepting their little part so that together we can start making these different choices. Yeah, I think maybe we're not little people, but we're individual people. And by ourselves, we're not as strong. So we don't have the same energy really with it. One other uh, American who has shown the way, I think, is Ken Burns, really showing our responsibility first in our civil war and, and looking at it from different sides, and now in Vietnam and the whole series he did there. And he's willing, I think, to look at our complicity in a process and help us as Americans to recognize we can still be moral. In fact, we're actually more moral if we can look at, analyze, and accept our responsibility in different activities, that is so important. It's something we have to learn how to do. Well, it's part of our history, too. So anytime you cut out a part of your history, you are cutting off a part of yourself. And so we are less whole in that way. And so I think a lot of times it is reconciling what is it that you are getting from a generational standpoint and understanding that it does affect you and being able to assess the the level to which those things affect you. I mean, this may seem not super related, but what's coming to mind is I think about, so I think I've talked about my grandma and how she was a school principal and that that was very unheard of for a woman during her generation. But recently, I've been having more conversations with my mom about some of the different lessons that have been passed down. And I know my mom was talking about how interestingly, so my mom also seeing my mom, my grandma as a career woman inspired my mom to, you know, pursue her own career. And yet she felt like my grandma wasn't very supportive of it because my grandma had such a hard time. I don't think she wanted the same for my mom, but mm-hmm. instead it, it 
instead of being able to have these conversations about it, it just created some conflict there. And, and so I think my mom in turn wants to make sure that she supports me in becoming a career woman because of so many of those struggles. And so even though this is a small kind of personal experience. I think we all have little things like this where if you look back, you can see how people make decisions based on their own experiences and pass that on. And what's so important is your mom is talking about it. She recognizes what her mother didn't do and may have thought, and she's trying to modify her own behavior and share it with you. Um, your mom and I are in the same generation. And I think one of the things that, uh, and we're really one of the first generations of women where most of the women worked outside the home. I really think women work in the home too and very hard, but outside the home and then had to balance a home job too. And, uh, a lot of women face discrimination, harassment, and things that weren't talked about. And I think the generation of women that I came from had thought, well, we'll have to tough it out. We'll have to get through it. This is normal. I don't think they realized uh, or felt able to speak out in the way that your generation is really doing around this. And I, I think this is so important. It's a real opportunity for us as an older group to provide support. And I think that's the thing is if we look at it, people, women, men in my generation, it's really only possible because of a lot of these dialogues and a lot of the work, the, the foundational work that women and men in your generation have set up. And so I think it's so important that we learn to recognize these ties and be able to build from them. Because I know one of the things, so. Obviously, it's a it's a biased sample set. But when I'm talking with my clients and they're having frustrations with their parents, one of the common things is they, they wonder about why mothers are staying with fathers in very unhappy relationships. And it's not like I have a magical answer, but I do think exploring these questions with them is important because, because it shows that today's generation, sometimes they have different opportunities. And so they aren't seeing it through the same lens. And it's important to understand those lenses that some women felt they couldn't be in a relationship without some with a man who was a certain way, or they felt that they needed to stay together for the children. And so I think just being able to open these dialogues is so important, because a lot of children that are in session with me, they're very angry at their mothers for staying. And I think then that interferes with your ability to have a, the conversation because you're just kind of trying to push that person away. But really, it's a learning experience. And, you know, I see those same children, but I also see the mothers and the mothers weigh, you know, heavily. Should they leave? Should they go? Right. You know, should they stay? Uh, what is the best option for their children, for maybe the partner they're conflicted about, for themselves? So, you know, that type of conversation shouldn't only be with a therapist in right. an office, but should be with the children. You know, I'm having these struggles. You are seeing these fights, you know, validating really the child's perceptions of what's going on. But maybe I, I feel like I have to stay to provide a home for your younger siblings till they leave for college, 
or I feel like I'd be so lonely if I were to leave my family that even this is better than how I imagine my situation. Right. You know, so there are, there's a lot of conversations that could be happening. And I think just to tie it all in, how this for me does tie into complicity is a lot of times these conversations revolve around feeling or putting blame on someone, feeling that they are being complicit. And it's really, instead of just kind of stamp, there you go, you're complicit. Mm -hmm. It's really looking at how do we end up in these situations? What are the systems in place that are enforcing this complicity? And what can we do to dismantle those systems or create new ones? And it's really about shades of complicity. We talk about shades of gray as part of a sexual palette, but shades of complicity where we're really looking at how we're complicit and in what ways. Back to those same teenagers, a lot of teens I work with have, uh, have, have encouraged them to speak out and stand up in their families when they see abuse taking place. So if they see the mom being abused by uh, the dad or a stepfather, they could stand up, they could say what they see. You know, it's, it takes a lot of bravery. Sometimes they're threatened when they do that. But I think they can take action at times and to find a way to supportively do that. They could ask the mom, how can I take action? How can I help you here? What would help? You know, there are ways to handle those situations. Well, I think one of the things you said there too, to to underscore is really the support because it's in order to do these things, in order to stand up. I do think some people inherently either have a stronger foundation or have more resilience skills that they've built over time. And they are more able to kind of be that token person, but they aren't doing it alone and they need support. And so even if you don't feel that you can be that one person who is standing up and making yourself a target in many ways, you can be a part of the system supporting somebody who is willing to do that. And I think that's how things change. Yes. And to go back and talk about the uh, the girl we were talking about earlier was abused. She did bond with one of the other girls, the oldest one in the daycare. And the two of them together were much more formidable. So I, even mm-hmm. in a situation which I was horrified at, where you see a group of yeah. children being abused in a daycare, you can see that if the children bond together, they really provide strength for each other. Well, I think also it's it's one of those psychological things where we're more likely to question our own self about something. But if you have someone else agreeing with you, that validation, it helps you trust yourself more too. I mean, it, it brings up the study where I can't remember who did it or where it happened, but do you remember the studies where they had um they had someone sit in a room And they were like filling it with smoke and they Mm -hmm. were trying to see at what point does a person go up and shout out about like, (laughs) yeah, there's a fire, right? And what they found is it matters how if there's another person in the room, it matters what that other person does because we are social people and we check in with one another and we go, do you think this is weird? Because I think this is weird. And if the other person says, no, I don't think it's weird then it it makes us question ourselves. And I think the Me Too is kind of about smoke in the room and yeah. smoke in the country. Yeah. Now everyone is saying, well, Me Too, I've had that experience of right. being abused in this particular way. 
And uh, I think you're exactly right that as bystanders, we're really not bystanders. We're participating in some capacity. Yeah. And we need to be aware of that and to really use the opportunities we have in that position. I also go back to, you know, I've been shocked uh, with the police and with the law and how it has not protected the victims over time. So I think legally, in some books, we've talked about it on this uh, podcast before, there are books written about how law has been changed and doesn't protect the rights of those that, you know, have been, were addressed in the 60s. And I think we really have to reexamine that and make changes there again. Well, it brings me back to one of the things that was so striking for me was when you were talking about your experience against the with the lawsuit and the university. And obviously, it wasn't just the discrimination, there was sexual harassment going on too. But that when you were talking with your lawyer, she was saying like, there's really no precedent for this. Right. And this just for the podcasters who have not heard this, just briefly, I sued uh, the University of California decades ago. There was not a precedent at that time. There were a lot of bystander interactions at that point, and a lot of women suffering harassment and discrimination. There also were degrees of complicity because several women women wrote in, or at least one, to the newspaper, even an editorial, about how this happens to all women. Why should we even address it? So you see that how it becomes normed out if harassment and discrimination are utilized in that way. But making a difference is, is you know, coming forward, speaking out, all of it helps. Well, and and again, rallying, right? Getting that support so that you realize, one, you aren't alone, but also other people realize they're not alone. And that gives us strength and power in numbers. And it, it gives you power, which is something that you need to change these systems. I mean, the the other thing that it brings up as you're talking about that woman who wrote in is, I think one of the things that has frustrated me for so long and I think we touched upon it some during the election results, was really how there are some women, obviously, who are still upholding these ideas. And that it's really, it's backwards when you look at it from a progress place, but really trying to instead come from a place of understanding and say, what is it that would, would make a woman choose some of these things, even though it does seem to have to sacrifice other women. And I think part of it is that in in the U.S., we have such an individual focus. And, and so then inherently, if you are having an imbalanced system, in order to succeed, you have to align yourself with things that sacrifice other people. And I think that's a hard... Well, it's it's also uh, the system of the male individual. And the other part to all of this, sadly, is that a lot of the strict gender roles in the U.S., though people do not see it. And the strictest one is that women support their man and his view. And there we see it with 54% of white women voting for Trump. Right. You know, and you're right. If we're looking from the perspective, look at those women. They supported their men. Their husbands voted for Trump. They voted for Trump. They adopted that world. They were following what they thought was right. 
and moral, you know, but it really sheds a different light on it. How do we help women to be equally strong, you know, in terms of gender roles? And how do we help all of us to look at the group good rather than just our, you know, we're out there in the West, we're the pioneer, we made it, we did it, you know, and uh, it's a it's a falsity, really, that we are that way. But well, rugged individualism yeah, really yeah. doesn't exist without the group support. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, coming at least in part from my dad's family, the Native American part that they worked as a group culture to really support each other. And they did survive on the plains, but it was a highly integrated group culture of people doing that. Um, you know, that's what makes for survival. Yeah, it does. And, and what I've always loved about Native American culture in so far as I learned about it was really that they still did believe in some specialization, but it wasn't, so it wasn't like everybody is doing all the things, right? It's it's not the uniformity of it, but it, it's the valuation of it. So a woman taking care of the children was as valued as the men going hunting, if we're going real stereotypic Native <laughs> American here, right? Because obviously not all tribes are like that, but it it's for me it was really about it was about the value placed on these these contributions to society and i think that's where we're really faltering in the us as a society is that we don't value these things equally and we've been talking about one of the things that america really does not value equally and that's children raising children, caring for children, because part of the reason our children end up in these very difficult situations is we don't treat them, you know, really adequately have child care that's provided by the government, regulated, watched, and, mm -hmm. you know, and care for everyone. And it is different than the Native culture where many would participate, and that's very different kind of culture. Of course, they only come from one Native culture. There's only so many you can come from. I know friends right. come from multiple. But, uh, you know, the particular one that I came from is a Plains culture, but really relied heavily on people working together as a team to both harvest and to uh, hunt, really a very big part of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the struggles that I work with a lot of dads who are stay-at-home dads, and they want to be stay-at-home dads, but it is a big struggle because if they were working simply because they are male, a lot of times they would be making more. And so it it's a balance where I don't think we necessarily as a society value fathers wanting to take on the child-rearing role either. And so it's not really just mothers and fathers. Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, people who aren't even dealing with children that have these issues. But I think we see it playing out so clearly in that aspect when we think about how we're raising future generations. And in terms of modeling, you know, what is possible if you want to be a stay-at-home dad? I think that's fantastic. And how do we have a society that supports that? And if you want to be able to work and stay at home at times, I think we need to just have more systems in place that support people, whatever it is they want to do in terms of being able to have that balance in their life. And really getting rid of the hierarchy associated with gender roles, you know, right. women's task 
cooking, childcare, all of those traditional are really devalued. So how do we make those important and have everybody have a part in it? You know, that would take away some from the complicity, you know, people watching what's happening to our children and really not doing anything about it. And that actually brings up for me, one of the things you had mentioned as a casual aside in one of our discussions was you were talking about where does this idea of like women's flaw flawlessness that everything has to be so effortless <laughs> comes from. And I think it actually does play into this this topic of complicity. What do you, what do you think? Well, that's a way to get you to do more work because you've got to look perfect. You've got to do the additional as Arlene Hochschild talks about 19 hours in the home for women, maybe a few hours less. I think it's down to 15 extra right now. And then you've got your work role. So uh, if you're considered to be perfect or that's the goal, you know, it's just not the goal for men. You know, even a, just a reasonable amount of quiet is all we expect from our current president. But you see very different goals. Women are expected to do a lot. And it's it's too much, really, for women. It is too much. They're almost too, they're tired so when you see men <laughs> engaging in bad activities, many women are too tired to really say anything about it. You're just exhausted. Yeah. I think, too, I mean, certainly this is not all men, so I don't want to make it sound that way. But I think there is a component of, you know, if we treat it as effortless, then they don't have to feel guilty about not participating. Because it's like, oh, well, it just happened effortlessly. So, of course, it's fine that I didn't participate. I don't know what you think about yeah, that, but well, I've I, thought about that. I think, especially with my little grandchild and my the son-in-law's fantastic at providing dad care. And he's changing, but he's provided more dad care for like a little one to two-year-old boy than I've ever seen before. You know, so he's there, he's with that little boy, little Jamie, and they're together. And at the Super Bowl, you know, little Jamie dragged his chair in, his little plastic chair to sit by his dad in front of the Super Bowl, you know, so there they'd be there together. Uh, so I think men are changing. I don't think it was sanctioned. You know, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier by the broader culture for men to do that. And that work was really very much devalued. Maybe not having your son watch the Super Bowl with you. I think that's probably always valued. But maybe changing your son's diaper or taking your son to the park, you know, all of those other things. Yeah, I mean, I just think obviously this conversation could go on forever in all the directions. But I think it's so, what's so fascinating to me was that starting with this concept of complicity, the more we talk, the more I think of like all these different <laughs> avenues in which it impacts our life and we don't stop and think about it. And so there are many ways in which we are complicit in different things. And I think instead of going back to where we started, instead of making these moral judgments on ourselves and saying like, oh my God, I'm immoral, I'm complicit in this. Let's just start looking at it in terms of a behavioral aspect. And is this something where I can make a change? Is this a place where if I put a lot of energy into it, it's going to have huge results? And looking on an individual, but also a collective basis, how do we balance that sense of I am an individual, mm. but I'm also impacted by the people around me? 
That is a great summary for this conversation, Jen. And uh, you know, it's been a pleasure really to talk to you about it. I also think the different generational perspectives on complicity are there and the different gender roles. So we have to integrate those, talk about that, and have a lot of conversations about how we can change those. Yeah, thank you, Lynn. Thank you. Come on. Let's talk about sex.